my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about Deepa Donraj, a documentary filmmaker from India. So I wanted to explore Deepa Donraj because the Criterion Channel has programmed a selection of her films this month, curated by a critic named Devika Girish, and I'd never heard the name before. When I checked Letterboxd, it seemed that her most popular film had been logged by maybe 40 people, something like that. So I don't know. I figured if the Criterion Channel was highlighting the movies, they're probably very good. And then that combined with their total obscurity was was catnip for me. Total obscurity going to the point that most of these films that are on Criterion are not even on IMDb. I know. This director does not have a Wikipedia page. And I think that people will be more and more surprised by that the more we talk about these films and how important they are and how effective they are. So yeah, they're on the Criterion channel. And I also just wanted to explore this filmmaker to explore a different side of Indian cinema. You know, guys like us, we're familiar with the sort of poppy Bollywood stuff. The bombastic, usually one central male hero doing impossible feats and singing songs. And it's easy for Westerners like us to go see, I don't know, RRR or something by, you know, one of the big Shah Rukh Khan movies and think, oh, this is very fun and innocent. Mm. And this is like a respite from the troubles of uh, American society. There's or no troublesome politics in any of these Hindi action movies, right? Right. And I think it's important to check out movies like this to give a better sense of, you know, the context that produces those movies, as well as just to understand the more complicated subtexts that we might be blind to and, to you know, just explore some excellent cinema. Too. Yeah. A lot of these are very captivating stories some of them focusing on specific people or groups that are just doing fantastic things and even if it was anywhere in the world, you would see documentaries about these things. So Deepa Donraj has been active for 40 years. She's a feminist filmmaker, but more than that, a anti-colonial and, you know, a truly intersectional feminist filmmaker. How does she not have, like, more fans or, like, thousands of people who, like, these things would interest them? Because she deals with, like, everything yeah. of, that would be interest of, you know, left Twitter, for example. I think it's because you it's look at these Indian movies. Cinema. It's it's Indian and it looks like homework. Mm -hmm. But know. it's not. It's not. And that's what we would like to communicate to the audience today. These movies aren't homework. These are very powerful and moving films. They're great human stories. And some of the things that she's able to capture are really remarkable. All right. So let's just give some background information by going to Wikipedia and reading her. Uh oh, no Wikipedia page on her. Eh? Oh, yeah. Very hard to find background information. You and I both watched an interview with her that was on one of the DVDs. She's done a lot of interviews with like academic journals or like women's studies organization, but I couldn't find like, all oh, right, I just want to see like the beginning, how you got into filmmaking. That was a little bit tougher to get a handle on. Well, she was a founding member of a pioneering feminist film collective in India called Yugantar. They made films about women's labor and domestic violence in particular. On the Criterion Channel retrospective, you can see that there are some films credited to Yugantar mm -hmm. in that retrospective, in addition to the ones later credited to her. In addition to that, I mean, she's as much a sort of pedagogical figure as a filmmaker. She's very involved in education in India, teaching a variety of subjects at both the academic and public school levels. So she is very 
very involved in all that stuff. So perhaps it's only like in English language circles that this stuff isn't available. It's not like we're going into other corners of the internet where maybe she is more present with this kind of stuff. But she's also talked about in some of the English language interviews, it's very difficult for her documentaries to get out there. That like, you can do it by going to tour and showing it to people. But usually like if you would show it in cinemas, it would be like a monthly thing to like a mostly middle class audience that, and this is me adding words, are probably just like patting themselves on the back about like, this is very bad, isn't it? Right. Present company excluded. No, no, of no. Course. Us two white guys <laughs> talking about these subjects. We're not like that at all. But the films are remarkable because of, you know, what she depicts and the access that she gets. Whatever the subjects that she deals with, she often works with a group that's active in that field. She becomes embedded with that group. In her interviews, she has talked about how her filmmaking becomes a sort of collaborative process. You know, she experiences whatever group she's working with, what they experience. Many of her films have long sections of just listening to the people, uh, usually women in these groups, tell their stories. And so they very much shape the narrative of the films. And she's also talked about how at the post-production and release stage, those people become some of the prime distributors of these movies. They take these movies back into their communities. So she's a very collaborative filmmaker, and that's one of the reasons why she's able to capture some of the things she's able to capture. And she's also dealing with a lot of difficult subjects. Like her first movie, What Happened to the City from 1983, she said it took like a year to get a censorship certificate to allow her to even screen the film in India. And she had to make cuts to it to be able to do that. Yeah, some of the recurring topics in her films include class and cast which oh boy we're gonna have to explain cast now aren't we probably 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 to ourselves as much as anything but why, why don't we first just talk about what has happened to this city from 1986 mm-hmm. now this film is about violence that erupts between muslim and hindu populations in the indian city of hyderabad there was centuries of peaceful coexistence followed by several decades of increasing tension that climaxed in 1984 with a series of riots and lootings and in this city this is the old city it was once the center of government in the city now it's overwhelmingly poor it gets a fraction of the resources and and tax money as the rest of the city it is primarily the muslim population as well as lower caste Hindus. I'm sure you've heard so much about the Hindu nationalist movement that is ascendant right now, the BJP party, the right-wing Hindu party. In film circles, we've heard so much about how, I mean, guys like you and me, we go see RRR. It just entirely registers to me as... Well, that ending, when you're watching it, you're like, oh boy. Well, that's the thing. It's like, if you go in without any context whatsoever, Mm -hmm. you look at S.S. Rajamuli's movies, and all you see is, oh, this is a dude's rock classic. Mm -hmm. You know, this is is a fun anti-colonial movie. Huh, it's weird that all the bad guys have darker skin for some reason. (laughs) Right. And, you know, this movie, I'm sure you could draw a direct link between what we see in this film and some of the strategies employed by the BJP party right now Mm -hmm. and others in the Hindu nationalist movement. And so this film, What Happened to the City, it paints a fairly large portrait of this kind of ride and the event. And the way that it does it is by going through it and seeing the end result of people talking about, you know, the riots that happen, the kind of hate speech, the attacks, as well as the things that, you know, got it all engaged, which perhaps could be a politician. Well, yeah, you find out that there are certain political and religious figures 
leaders that devote themselves to riling up tensions between the Muslim and Hindu communities, provoking the Muslim community. And then, you know, the riot happens and you have someone to blame. You have someone to blame. You have, you know, groups of people that you can then kind of rile up to go against the other. And then and then it's no longer just a Muslim riot. It's also a Hindu riot. There's violence all over the place. A huge amount of this movie is spent. I mean, there's amazing footage of some of the riots. Yeah, she's just there. Or her and her team recording this stuff happening. You know, it looks genuinely dangerous to be there. But the bulk of the movie is the testimony of the people who live in this uh, heartbreaking, rather impoverished um, old neighborhood, mostly Muslims, but also, as I said before, a lot of lower class Hindus who feel the persecution uh, becomes very widespread because a lot of the lower caste Hindus then feel themselves, you know, the target of their Muslim neighbors. They become people to blame in this in this situation. But then it's like, fuck, we're poor. Mm-hmm. You know, our lives We're, we're all be... in the same boat. <laughs> right, like... right. And this is the intersectional side of her cinema that's so important. She's not simply looking to, you know, one easy scapegoat or one easy thing. Like, it's a, it's a vast system in her movies. And she's not like a direct documentarian filmmaker in the sense that usually when that is spoken of they go oh there's no intent behind what they're doing even though editing creates intent anybody listening to this knows this she is very kind of direct to the point that was it a quote at the end it sounded like probably her speaking over the end of the movie i think it probably is her speaking she says if one room in your house is on fire can you sleep in another room if there is a corpse in one room can you sing in another if corpses are rotting in one room can you pray in another if your answer is yes then I have nothing to say to you. I mean, talk, talking about India as a yeah, whole. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Directly to the audience at the end of the movie. But yeah, the testimony that we hear from these people, I mean, she's thinking systemically, she's thinking broadly, and she wants you to understand, you know, there's this riot, some stores are broken, and, you know, people are hurt. And then you find out the huge after effects, like there are some people who depend on like their rickshaw income, for mm-hmm. instance, to make even the most basic income. And, and they're all like, destroyed. the cops didn't come. We called them and they didn't come. And they just let it burn. And so then food and supplies aren't coming in, the mail's not coming in, you know, this has very vast impacts on everybody who's in the community. Uh, So it's this enormous picture. Like you you can see that they stir up the riot and it has vast consequences. Mm -hmm. I'm sure she has more credits in between that. But I think the one that was available to us was something like a war from 1991. Well, this is an incredible movie. I mean, this really this really blew me away. So India was the first country to adopt an official state-sanctioned family planning program. Oh, that sounds good, right? They're just helping people uh, plan their families. Right. And um, No, no, bad. Well, as we, as we join the family planning program at this point, India has a surging population, and there are all of these clinics, these sort of women's health clinics, if you will, all over the place that have become big business. And the movie makes very clear that this is not about education, it's just about numbers and people exploiting this kind of stuff. The film starts with you're seeing these operations being done. You don't hear about as much about abortion in this movie, actually. No. We mostly hear about our... I like, mean, you hear some, some about yeah, abortion, Yeah, like roughly preventative in an exploitative way. And you see one doctor be like, well, I can do it in 45 seconds now. Bring them in, get them out. Right. A lot of very, like, painful IUD procedures mm-hmm. that, you know, if the women want their IUDs removed later, you know... They don't want to do it. That, yeah, like they'll just refuse to do it, even though, of course, they have the right to do it. But we hear a lot of the, we hear a lot from the women and we hear a lot from mostly lower caste 
poor women. And just talking about their experiences, talking about things like, I find sex pleasurable. Right. <laughs> like, I like this kind of stuff. But they also talk about the difficult dilemma they're in. They've got the government that's saying, stop having children. But then if you can't afford land, then children are one of the few resources that you have that can generate income for you. If you have a son that can work, that's very important. You don't want too many daughters. Like daughters are, sons are, are a mm. more prized commodity. You've also got like in-laws and husbands who are putting pressure on you, even in the face of this government opposition. To have more children. To have more children because, you know, we want an heir. We want the family to continue. But then also- There's people roaming the streets trying to get women to, to go to this operation because they get money for it. Yeah. The family planning clinics have become big business. There are, you know, headhunters and village elders and people like that who are being paid by a quota system if you can get this number of women to go get the you know forced sterilization procedure evasive and seemingly you know there's a lot of interviews near the end of the documentary of women that have had difficulty with this dangerous procedure yes but you've got to get a certain amount or else you won't get paid and then the clinics themselves i mean the clinics themselves are businesses the people running them have their own problems to worry about if they don't get a certain number of people through the doors then the government will shut them down and then, of course, you find out what's actually behind all this is Western money. Yes, that they're the ones that are funding all of this stuff. Right. It's uh, Rockefeller. It's the Ford Foundation. It's various paragovernmental organizations in Canada and the U.S. and probably Europe as well. And the quotes that they that she quotes to us from like the 50s and 60s are oh just... yeah because she she paints a whole historical path of how we got to this point as well yeah like the quotes that we hear from you know the government the western governmental officials in the 50s and 60s are just like nakedly imperial it's like well we we have to control the population because if the population is too great they'll have more incentive to mobilize and uh, western influence won't be as strong now western powers have gotten a lot savvier in how they sell that message in the years since eh, not that much <laughs> i mean now now it's you know now like bono or someone will go on yeah. tv and say something like bono. oh we just want to do sex education you know but that's not what they're doing that's not actually what they're doing and they're not the ultimate conclusion that the film reaches it is this isn't about education this isn't about alleviating poverty it's, it's about, about control it's about genociding the poor yeah and some of the images that we see in these clinics are really hair raised so like at the beginning you see one of the women having an operation and she has a hand over her mouth and oh. i only noticed it later on that you see that same woman at the end and it goes on a few seconds and she's screaming like you bastard as it's going on oh it's so awful and then you also find out about like these procedures these experimental drugs that some of these women are on like they get funding from the government of india but also yeah places like the rockefeller foundation or whatever for these weird experimental fertility drugs now this um, may sound like a miserable documentary and in some ways it is but it's also like an angry and a righteous one which is why i think people should watch it because i don't want this to sound too much like a chore that's what i mean yeah, yeah like the women that you hear from are extraordinary mm -hmm. like they're very clear-eyed about the situation they're in they're very clear Right about the forces that are at work here they have a lot of personality like you will enjoy spending time with mm -hmm. the women in this film absolutely what you definitely don't see in those popular indian movies are just like normal people yes um lower cast people certainly in anything but a villainous role and let's jump again more than a decade to the next film that was available to us love in the time of aids from 2006 well a much more upbeat mm -hmm. film a film that's more designed to just like 
bring an understanding to the people that would watch it about a situation, in this case, being gay in India. Yeah, so this follows a group of, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it correctly, but Kothis, Kothis, K-O-T-H-I-S, which according to my favorite source, Wikipedia, translates to a man or boy who takes on an effeminate role in same-sex relationships. We see them in the city of Belgam, Karnataka, as they're doing a variety of programs to promote safe sex among the queer population there. Yeah, this is a much more pleasant documentary in the sense that it's serious subject matter, but they're just talking about their lives. You just see them going around teaching sex education to other people. And like, obviously, we hear stories, you know, some of their stories stories are more upbeat than others. They've Mm -hmm. all faced lots of discrimination, but we also see them having fun. We see them dancing. Mm -hmm. We see them putting on shows. You know, some of the clinics they hold, some of the demonstrations they hold of like proper condom use are quite funny and quite interactive. Yeah, like this is a fake dick, you know, yeah. I, I'd like to whip mine out, but I, I don't know if I could do that uh, multiple times a day. And so, yeah, it's just like a pleasant, fun documentary. Now, Invoking Justice from 2011, um, this is another one that I think is one of the best. Oh, this is one when I was watching and I was like, this feels like one that everyone should be talking about. Yeah, I mean, this is at so much the intersection of so much that people are thinking about right now, mm-hmm. but In communities in southern India, there are these paralegal bodies called jamats, J-A-M-A-A-T-S. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing it. A panel of men hear cases in family disputes, and they apply Sharia law to settling them. And uh, women are not allowed to advocate for themselves or testify in these uh, Jamaat panels. It's typically a man in the house who testifies on their behalf and then brings the judgment back to them. And these panels usually are community-based. They have no legal authority, technically. But they but work obviously with the they police. have a lot of weight. Yeah. yeah, they work with the police, and the police are probably going to enforce whatever decision mm-hmm. they make, right? But because... They have no official legal authority. A group of women could theoretically start one of their own. So beginning in 2004 in Tamil Nadu, a group of women did begin their own women's jamaat to hear and settle cases, which within a few years, there had become hundreds of such groups all over India. And they listen to all sides, male and female, and they work with the police to get the men to testify. I can't imagine how difficult it must be at oh times in some in some communities i like, mean just hair raising the stuff that they do because they deal with domestic abuse cases they deal with murder murders cases. yeah and basically like they're not solving murders like they're not like sluice but they're in some ways detectives that are like talking to people trying to get them to kind of like go and petition for themselves to the police they also help people who wouldn't feel comfortable going to the police or when the police come and confront for example an abusive husband been they will sit there with the person encouraging them helping them getting to them like a place where you know the justice essentially that they deserve so you know this film follows one such group who are seeking justice and we see a couple of different cases we see two different women who are probably well we don't see the women but um, we hear cases of women who were probably murdered by their husbands or their husband's family but you know the cases were written up by police as oh it's a suicide suicide yeah that's right Uh, oh man and the loops that they jump through of being like, oh, we'd love to inspect the body, but it was a suicide. And according to, you know, the Quran, we can't dig up the body. Yeah, we, it's a suicide. What are we going to do? Exhume the body? We, mm-hmm. we can't do that. And then it's like, you know, we see them negotiating with the police in some cases. And it's like, oh, man, but they are like uh, whip smart. They know the Quran uh, forward and backward so they can, you know, kind of like push them in one direction. And they are just 
They do not give up these women. But it it is also incredible because it's like an unstoppable force meets an immovable object mm-hmm. because the police or many of the men that they're negotiating with are just so kind of, you know, they have a particular kind of view of Sharia in their head. And it's like, you know, yeah, there's this mountain of evidence saying that this woman was murdered by her husband. But ultimately, none of us witnessed it. So uh, mm-hmm. what, what can you do? I guess we got to write it up as a suicide. But there are some amazing confrontations where these women, like they're talking to someone who... Uh, works on the men's uh, council and they're like oh listen we tried there's nothing for us to do and she's like no okay do this do you have the wedding documents even if you can't exhume the body you can see the dowry this is why they would have killed them and in some situations like basically just their you know not stopping pushes them to be like we just don't want to do this anymore an election is coming up like let's just solve this and they do find solutions thanks to their just you know tenacity yeah the the tenacity not giving up and to underline the fact that these movies aren't homework i mean this is another example where like the women might surprise you you know they're never they're never just one thing we hear about you know most of the women that we see including the ones who are on these paralegal bodies have suffered domestic violence in the past most of them have been beaten by their husbands at one time or another but they're never depicted as just that nobody in the film is depicted as just what happened to them as you say they're all incredibly smart sometimes they're very funny oh yeah listening to them argue it's just fun to hear their minds oh, at there's work. this one amazing sequence where you see them like arguing with the police and other of the men's jamat group who are like oh we can't do this we can't do that and then it cuts to them like making fun of the men and what they said and the responses that they gave right so you do get that sense of community you do get the sense of people coming together and wanting to solve these impossible issues and it just makes for a very compelling documentary and riveting because it again it seems like some of the work they're doing i mean they've all faced threats and harassment and some of this work seems genuinely dangerous (laughs) terrifying because like these men that they're pissing off could come at them well as we can find out in some communities it's very easy to get away with a murder Mm -hmm. now from 2019 this is not in the criterion channel retrospective it's called we have not come here to die this is a more recent film and the background for this film is in january of 2016 a phd student at the university of hyderabad committed suicide and it sparked a massive protest movement across India and that's chronicled here his name was Rohith Firmula and he was lower caste now the constitution of India promises education for all regardless of caste but you know it's like any kind of uh, systemic oppression yeah and caste is something that you're born into yeah that you know you can be a particular lower caste and that means that people will look down upon you and you probably will not give you opportunities that you would have if you were a higher caste. And by the way, in case it needs to be spelled out, that is skin tone. I was doing some research and I said, I read that like, because I was reading about uh, caste discrimination in Canada and there were a bunch of articles that I found of Indians that moved to Canada and were dealing with these issues in their own communities and that it can also be uh, seen in the surname Mm. of people's name because the person being interviewed was like, I either change my name and that's the only way I can get out of it. But again, we're speaking from very ignorant positions here. Well, I do know that India's constitution was signed in 1949 and a key figure in that movement was Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, who belonged to one of the so-called untouchable castes. That's what they actually call it. Yeah. Thanks to him, the constitution formally outlawed untouchability, quote unquote, which is the enforcement of discrimination based on caste. And it also specified for some affirmative action programs. Now, this is like the civil rights movement or something like that. Yeah, or like, like racism this... went away after that, right? Right. No. But, but caste is incredibly 
heavily enforced. And uh, I was just watching a recent Masala blockbuster and the main character was like, oh, but what cast is she? And it's like, ugh. Now, Rohith Vemula, who is the student whose suicide sparked all of this, he was an outspoken critic of the caste system. Because he was a lower caste. Uh, yes, a member of anti-caste student groups. And that made him a target of discrimination and relentless harassment. His death occurred against the backdrop of the rising Hindu supremacist movement. Mm -hmm. At the time, uh, him and his organization were butting head to head with a Hindu nationalist right wing group. Right. So it all began in August 2015. There was a documentary screening in Delhi that was disrupted by the ABVP Student Union, which is a right wing Hindu nationalist student organization that's all over the country, very closely aligned with the BJP party. That film that was that was banned was about BJP politicians engineering Hindu Muslim riots to galvanize popular support, very much like what we said about what happened to this city. Now, Vimula was part of the Ambedkar Students Association, which was that anti-caste group. And in retaliation, they and many other similar student organizations screened that documentary at their own their own colleges. And obviously, if you're if you're part of the right wing group, you can't, you know, the optics aren't good if you disrupt a screening. But what you can do is smear them in other ways. So that organization that Vimula was part of, it had lent its support to some kind of prayer event. Yeah, for someone who had been convicted as a terrorist. Right, a Muslim person who was convicted of terrorism. And they lent their support because they're an anti-death penalty group, among other things. Well, this, of course, gets smeared as you're for terrorism. Yeah, you support... you're anti-nationalist. Right. And if you call something anti-nationalist, that's a big problem. So... So this led to Vermula getting much of his funding cut, relentless harassment. Yeah, he was uh, expelled from the student dormitories, mm -hmm. and I believe he was suspended as well. And his suicide shook the nation, and we see a number of different groups all over the place in a number of different protests. Again, the footage she captures is amazing. And it should be noted as well as that like, they have it out for one of the people in power because he was responsible for, I mean them being kind of suspended under pressure from other right-wing groups. You also find out just how much the system is stacked against when you find out that Vimula's mother, he's he was mixed caste. His mother was a lower caste and his deadbeat father who, who abandoned him, skipped town, was a higher caste. And the government was determined to make sure that he was classified as the higher caste so that he wouldn't be entitled to the sort of benefits that a lower caste person would get who faced discrimination. Yeah. So basically, by the end of the movie, the government decides, oh, well, we actually can't convict on this case because it's not anti-caste discrimination because he wasn't one of these lower castes. Right. Absolutely infuriating, like most of these political documentaries will get you all riled up. It's really like taking you from point A to point B, but giving you all of this context. And it's like the perfect documentary to get people not only informed by the subject, but also make you understand the people that are just influenced by it and get inspired by it and just like keep moving forward, even though that like at the end of this documentary, Nothing is technically achieved against the people who may have been responsible for this young man committing suicide, but you see that it still formed all of these groups who these problems and perhaps they felt that they were feeling alone suddenly had a community to move forward with. 
I would encourage anyone to check out these documentaries because, you know, they're certainly leftist intersectional feminist films, but they don't deal in liberal pieties. No, not at all. They are they're about the complexity of the situations that they depict. You will be constantly surprised throughout them, not just by the kind of richness of the characters that you see, but by how broad the tapestry they cover is. And you genuinely get a sense as difficult as what some of them depict are. I don't think you leave them feeling as hopeless or frustrated as you sometimes do because you get a sense, you actually understand what the problems are. You understand what all of the many multifaceted dynamics are at play that make these problems what they are. And these are dynamic and engaging documentaries. Oh, yeah. Like, that should be underlined as much as possible because Mm -hmm. when you say, tell someone like, oh, you got to watch this, you know, leftist documentary, like we've said many times when we deal with this kind of subject, people often go, oh, boy, this is going to be homework. Yeah. Yeah. These are not work. You'll see uh, many amazing characters, Mm -hmm. see many incredible sights, and you will feel righteous fury, but you'll know what the problems are. And the thing about these are, they're also very accessible. It's on the Criterion channel. (laughs) Like, if people consider themselves like, I love, you know, dealing in world cinema, you probably have a subscription to that. There is that curated collection that you can watch. Almost all of the movies that we mentioned are on there. So get on there, log it, tell your friends to watch these as well, because they deserve to have much bigger English-speaking audiences. Now, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have a letter this week. It is from Valerie F. And it goes, hey, Justin and Will, loving the show as always. My question today is, are there any directors who have impacted you to an extreme level when to almost all else they are breezed over entirely or only have the most surface level readings? Are there ones who over your time as film fans, the reputation of them has risen from previous obscurity? Hmm. I'm trying to think that like most of the directors I really like, there will always be some kind of subset of super fans who are like, these are great. Uh, you know what? I would probably say like a bunch of Canadian filmmakers, like Paul Donovan is someone who I really like. What's he ma- done? Siege. Oh, Siege, yes. Yeah, and he also made a movie called Paint Cans that I always describe as American Psycho if it took place in the Canadian funding <laughs> agency. There's a movie, NFB made it, and no one has watched it. And like a, a, a lot of other kind of like Canadian filmmakers who maybe only have like two or three films under their belt. And, you know, people have been discovering them. Even someone like Zale, who made Skip Tracer, available on Gold Ninja Video, I'm really excited to see, you know, international people see the movie and go, wow, this is really interesting and fun. I'm glad that I was able to see something like that, that I did not previously know about well one director who we did an episode about who i still think is a little bit underexplored is robert flory oh yeah. you remember robert flory oh, absolutely. That episode? yeah i mean he did he's most famous for he directed murders in the room morgue the bella lugosi horror film he did the marx brothers first movie the coconuts which is not one of his best movies he also did you know a million kind of a b pictures yeah or even c pictures really the beast with five fingers the face behind the mask which is a great like peter laurie b movie that runs like an hour long as well as a lot of like less known ones like the preview murder mystery and i think we talk about in that episode that one of the reasons that he doesn't have that much critical attention is that he just made too many movies too many movies and maybe he doesn't have a detour exactly in there i feel like there probably is there's a really good book written about him that came out like 
25, even more than that, years ago. I've got it. It's great. That goes through his entire career and breaks down every movie by category. Even as good as that is like a little overwhelming. And I got to say, some of his movies are just not available either. I know. But the ones that are available, there are a lot of really good ones there. And there's a consistent style that I really like. Yeah. Because he does have that kind of like very stylish and aware. He was a big movie fan. He wrote books in French about the history of cinema. And you can see it in his movies, even as he was kind of being like worn down by the system that he just had to work on the product line for. Also, his first film was that avant-garde short film from the 1920s called Life and Death of a Hollywood Extra, Mm -hmm. which um, I know that like that played in high circles, like Charlie Chaplin and people like that loved it. In fact, uh, Robert Floyd was the assistant director on Monsieur Verdu. He was indeed. And and really hated the experience, apparently, because like if you've seen Chaplin's films, you've seen Robert Floyd's films, you'll know that visually they're quite different kinds of filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And it feels just like any day now there'll be like a Robert Flory box set or something like that. <laughs> I it, hope so. God. It feels like he's a director that's waiting to be discovered. And if people go, wait, Gold Ninja Video, why can't you do that? Fortunately, he worked with the studio system a lot. So like his films were like Columbia or Warner Brothers kind of see pictures. So those need to be dug up out of the archives and put out there. And something that I've been making a list of recently is just Indian film directors, because it's something that like to try to, for me, an English language fan, just kind of chart careers is a little bit difficult because there's not that much information written about them that isn't just commonly accepted of communities from where you know the films originated from so i literally have a list right now writing like okay look into these directors these are the films that you like that they made and see if there's more like this oh you know who's a filmmaker i like whose reputation has risen in cinephile circles during my lifetime is jackie chan (laughs) okay Because, of course, we all know Jackie Chan. Yes. We all know, like, Rush Hour. But do you remember when we were younger and, like, nobody had seen Police Story? No. Like, it was very hard. It was very hard hard to find anybody, just any normal person who'd seen Police Story who Mm -hmm. wasn't, like, going to Chinatown to see it. Now, everyone loves Police Story. It's on the Criterion Channel. All those, like, Hong Kong movies that he made, you know, the ones that weren't released by Dimension and New Line, I feel like those have become not just more widely seen, but they've become part of the canon in a way that they weren't 20 years ago. I absolutely agree. And to that I say, enough Jackie Chan. <laughs> Unless we're hosting a screening that is about that. That might be true. Why, can we say that, by yeah, the way? Yeah, we can, because we I announced it on Twitter. Justin and I are inaugurating our new series at the Fox Theater in Toronto called Important Cinema Club Masterpiece Classics. Mm-hmm. And we're, are, we're showing a movie you might have heard of called rumble in the bronx that's right we kind of bumped our heads together to figure out a jackie chan film that just doesn't screen very often even though i know rumble in the bronx recently played in vancouver at i believe the roxy which Uh-oh. is the perfect place to see it i mean in vancouver they must have just been going ape shit seeing yeah. all of their <laughs> all of their favorite haunts in the background of that film yeah we're gonna be doing a screening there we will be hosting it uh we'll probably be editing a video before it there'll be shtick we'll make it a big event oh i i think me and will we'll also have a zine that can be uh taken for free that we'll just be handing out there and come connect with your fellow important cinema club fans mm-hmm. this is gonna be our woodstock that's right and we're hoping to make this a regular thing perhaps a monthly thing. So come to this one just to show like, oh, wow, there's a big audience for this. And then come to the second one, please, because yeah. the tenants will be lower. At that oh, much one. lower at the second one. Well, I mean, the second one, boy, if we can get the movie we want to play, that's going to be popping off <laughs> anyway. So yeah, that there'll be more information. Just follow me on Twitter for that. 
And this letter actually continues, though. The particular director that made me think of this, someone I'd love to hear talk about is Frank Perry. Perry was a director I found through the persistent championing of Larry Karaszewski in Trailers from Hell. Diary of a Mad Housewife has since become my favorite film of all time. I think no other film captures feminine alienation quite in the way that Mad Housewife does thanks to Frank's direction and his then-wife Eleanor Perry's screenplay. It's fascinating how he was very early an independent filmmaker to get nominated for an Oscar in 1962 for David and Lisa and continued making mostly independent film throughout New Hollywood, and yet he was not even mentioned in Easy Rider's Raging Bull. Bilge Ebery has written on the Perrys, and Justin Bozen has been working for a decade on a biography. I just wish there was more. Yeah, we should do an episode on Frank Perry, right? I really like Frank Perry, and I actually reached out to Larry Karaszewski and asked if we would be on this podcast to talk. We talked about this when it happened. We did. I completely forgot. Did to he, talk did about. Did he say yes? No, he said, oh, I'm too busy. Oh. <laughs> because uh, there was a bunch of Perry films that were coming out, and he was doing commentary on them. And I said, oh, would you like to be on an episode about Frank Perry that we could do for the important cinema? Does he know who we are? (laughs) I'm sure he does not care. I think he said like, oh, reach out to me later. And then I like reached out and just silence afterwards. (laughs) Okay, well, well, listen. And Frank Perry is a very interesting director as well Is that, hmm, just like Peter Bogdanovich, the films were never really the same after his creative collaborator, his wife, left him uh, to do his things on his own. You don't like Mommy Dearest? Uh, I mean. It's not very good. It's not very good. Do I like it? Yes. And the letter don't fuck with me, boys. This ain't my first rodeo. (laughs) And this letter just wraps up with also before I cap off this letter, I wanted to add that I emailed way back on October 28th, 2018, which was a full 11 days before I came out as trans in my day to day life. I just wanted to add this because it was really cool to hear my name on the show right before I did that. Thank you. Anyway, talk to you again in four and a half years. Well, that's very nice. Yeah, thanks very much. And uh, thank you very much for the great letter. And as per usual, you can send us emails at Podcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we're talking about the biggest Rocky movie ever. Creed 3. We both went to see it. We both have feelings about it. Perhaps controversial feelings. Perhaps perhaps we have a hot take. Mm-hmm. So we'll find out. So to listen to us talk about that and hear especially me get riled up as we're talking about it, check out patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. $5 a month gets you that episode and our back catalog of hundreds and hundreds of other ones. So what are we doing next week? Next week, we're talking about French filmmaker Marie-Claude Tréhou. Who is that? Uh, you know what? I have seen one of her films, which I have loved and have looked into her other films, which seemed very fascinating. And I just thought it would be fun subject to tackle to be, you know, on that cutting edge of like, wow, is an English language podcast talking about this filmmaker. No one ever talks about them. This is what's going to make us rich. Yeah. Talking about the stuff nobody knows about. And then after that, Tom Cruise, too. <laughs> yeah. Some, something big. Uh, so what are some of the films? Her films include uh, Simone Barbet ou Vertu. Uh, there's an English translation on the copy that I watch, and I don't know what it is because that first one is just a name. There is uh, The Day of Kings. There is also A Small Case of Conscience. Most of her films are very feminist, and she had a very varied career that started in 1980 and, you know, is still basically going to now that kind of splits it between like feature length movies. She did like a fantasy film. She did some documentaries. And I think it's just a perspective that's going to be really fun to talk about. Well, looking forward to it. And say that name again. It is Marie-Claude Tréhou, T-R-E-I-L-H-O-U. Okay, so if you had my accent, how would you pronounce it? (laughs) What? uh, Marie-Claude Tréhou. Treyu. Treyu, okay, yeah. Right. So until next week. My name's Justin Glue. And I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. 
As per usual, I'd like to thank some of our new patrons, who include Jeremy Swick, Xenia Flowerbud, John Warner, and Alex Abbott. Thank you very much for your patronage. We could not keep doing this without you. And I would also like to give you a reminder to review the Important Cinema Club podcast on Apple Podcast or whatever podcast app that you use. It really helps get the word out there, a review, a star rating. It helps us find a bigger audience, which makes us want to keep going as well. And while you're there, why not just give reviews to some other podcasts that I participate in, which include No Such Thing as a Bad Movie, the Bay Street Video Podcast, and the new Very Fine Comic Book Podcast, which you can check out at the Very Fine Comic Book Podcast. And of course, if you haven't reviewed Will Sloan's podcast, Michael and Us, get on there and do it as well. Make a day of it, or really just kind of like 10 minutes, and review all these podcasts. We would very much appreciate it. Well, Justin and I know that we both watched the recut of Francis Ford Coppola's Twixt. We did. This week. Now, Twixt is Francis Ford Coppola's most recent film until his upcoming Megalopolis comes out. If it comes out. I think he wrapped filming. Oh, did it wrap filming? So he, I thought they were still in the middle of it. Adam Driver wrapped last week, he oh, said okay. in an interview. So um, unless he really fucks things up in post-production, like he deletes the file or something, looks like it's going to come out. You know that happened with the original script from Megalopolis, right? That like he got his he house got, got broken into? Yeah, he yeah. lost all of it. That's terrible. Well, anyway, Twixt was released in 2011, and or it premiered in 2011. I think it was released <sighs> in 2012. I wish I had gone to that premiere. I was in Toronto, and my friends did, and it's the only time that the 3D sequences were in the movie. Well, do you remember that Francis Ford Coppola rented out Hall H at Comic-Con to yes. hype that movie, which is madness. Well, what he wanted to do was have a touring thing where he would show the movie and edit it on the fly. He even wrote a book about it. Yeah, and that's great. And I would love that because what we have right now, mm-hmm. I cannot imagine this like touring all over. I mean, I like this movie, but I can't imagine touring all over. So for people that don't know, Twix is a story of Val Kilmer playing a Stephen King-like figure. Well, no, much a, lower. A fourth or fifth thri- string Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And okay, we'll tell you the story. But what you need to know is this movie looks really cheap. Yes, very cheap. Even though it has the same cinematographer as The Master. <laughs> Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I even checked. I'm like, what cameras were they shooting this on? <laughs> and it's like Sony cameras, which, OK, I guess 2011, it should not look this bad. But you need to remember that this movie was one of a string of three movies that Coppola made between like 2006 or 2007 and 2011 that were funded with his own wine money mm-hmm. on it shot on his own vineyard playing only according to his own rules, because he's a huge wine baron. And that's where he's made his not fortune. anymore. Well, he's Megalopolis, which costs like $150 million or something like that. Yeah, he sold huge parts of his land to fund it, which I think is great. Like, what is he? I love it. Yeah. 82? He said, like, I'm going to die. Like, why? I don't need this. Yeah. I'm sure his family's like, oh, please. It's like, you got the residual. Shut up. <laughs> That'll be fine. Yeah. So watching Twix makes you wonder, like, what what is Megalopolis going to look like? Now, if I'm going to be very generous, the kind of, hmm, let us say, flat shooting style of it, which perhaps designed for being edited live and on the fly. Maybe. But it is a flat looking movie. Oh, yeah. Tetro, the one he did before that, and Youth Without Youth, frankly, both look a lot, you know. Better, yeah. Yeah, a lot fancier than this. And 
I think I was very hard, very hard on this movie when we probably did our episode on Francis Ford Coppola, because that was also famously the episode we had to record twice. Oh, my God. Well, I'll never listen to that one again because it was just so traumatic. <laughs> and you probably hear, like, I remember when we did it, we were talking and I could not believe we were doing the same bits and we were like laughing. And it's like, oh, my God. Have we ever said this on Mike? That Francis Ford Coppola episode, he's not joking. We recorded it. We lost the file. Yeah. We came back a week later. And, and we basically did the same. We episode. did the, ex- it was as if we were doing a play. Yeah. including us laughing at each other. Yes. <laughs> so basically any laugh you hear on this podcast is canned. I edit, added in editing. So that's why. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I first saw Twixt, I thought it was terrible, of course. Watching it this time, I was feeling much fonder Me towards too. it. I think that means I'm mellowing in my old age or becoming more generous. Well, I think that maybe when you see it, you're like, oh, well, how does this compare to the master filmmaker, Francis Ford Coppola? This doesn't look like the guy who made The Godfather. <laughs> or Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Well, okay. The new Blu-ray that came out, which goes under the title Betwixt Now and... Sun- well, sorry, what's it called? Betwixt... I got... Betwixt, now Before Sunrise? Betwixt Now and Sunrise. That's mm. the new version that's out, which is nine minutes shorter than the 2011 version. It comes with a great behind-the-scenes documentary, just an hour of footage by his granddaughter, Gia, that shows him on the set. And he's relaxing. He's having a good time. He's like, oh, I kind of want to make a Roger Corman-type movie. Yeah, like Dementia 13. And you can understand that, because that's what the film, when you hear him say that, feels like. So the plot is, yeah, Val Kilmer is this kind of shitty horror author who comes to a small town to do an unsuccessful book signing and gets caught in a murder mystery. Every night he has this dream that he goes to this uh, spooky uh, haunted uh, horror world. Yeah, Yeah, and Fanning is haunting, and uh, all and Han Solo himself, Alden Ehrenreich. Yeah, and- who in this director's cut barely talks. Yeah. He talks a lot more than the uh, theatrical version. And the two things you need to know are most of the movie is quite campy, the horror scenes especially, but even the normal scenes of just Val Kilmer in the town have a weird stilted quality to them. Yes, and I will say that it does feel like Francis is having a laugh with this stuff, because you see him in the behind the scenes, like, it's just a silly movie. It's, uh, you don't got to worry about it. You're right. But then the other thing you need to know it's is his most personal film that he's ever made. Yes, because it's all about the fact that his son in real life died in a tragic boating accident. And in the film, Val Kilmer's daughter, and you only learn this in the director's cut at the end of the movie. In the other version, we know that his daughter passed away like earlier on. Mm-hmm. In this one, it's revealed at the end, just like the theatrical version, she was killed in the exact same way his son was. But then there's no denouement after. No. In this new version, it just ends cold right after that revelation. Well, because Edgar Allan Poe, I think he has a line where it's like, you know, art is the tomb that we make for us all. Right. It's like, hey. This movie is what's going to define you. So if it's going to be this personal, end it on that personal note. And I found it on this viewing much more powerful than I did last time. Yes, because in the original version ends very, very goofily in a version that I like. But like a vampire is opening her fangs and her braces are flying at Val Kilmer and he's like dodging out of the way. I also think it's remarkable to end this movie, which up until that point is pretty goofy still. Yes, very goofy. With this very tragic and and it really abruptly after that and then know that like coppola is basing this off a real thing like it's amazing how grief manifests itself Mm -hmm. you know like you can see him it's almost as if he's like listen uh i want to have fun with this movie i want to get my mind off my grief i want to think about other things but then the grief comes out of the end or maybe it's him saying yes i'm feeling grief constantly i think about my my dead son every day even as i'm doing these silly things that in the case of val kilmer is about like vampires or witches it's still there Mm -hmm. and it expresses itself in a lot of different ways sometimes sometimes it's sofia coppola dying at the end of godfather 3 
Sometimes it's a silly vampire movie. That looks bad. <laughs> that looks bad. Oh, conventionally, because I was talking to Mark Hansen. He's like, I like how it looks. And I was I, like, I kind of like how it looks. I, I do too. But conventionally, it looks bad. Like, <laughs> yeah. just flatly look. I think I said on the Base Video podcast, I expected like a uh, shirtless hunk to walk through and just tidy whitey. Oh, like a, like Dave- a David Dakota movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, on this viewing, I found it strangely moving. Yeah, I think it is strangely moving, even though that everybody watching this will know the context of it because the ending is incredibly abrupt. Oh, yeah. 